Thanks to HelloFresh for sponsoring this episode of Future Hindsight. I'll tell you more about them later. But in the meantime, go to HelloFresh.com slash Hopeful12 and use code Hopeful12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. To me, implicit immunity means that based on your status in our society, you're going to be given a pass and a lot of second chances and third chances, and in some cases, infinite chances, even if you violate white collar criminal laws. And when someone of that status ends up getting prosecuted and put in jail, they end up going to a kind of club fed, a minimum security prison camp. People often emerge from prison and they can rehabilitate themselves. Sometimes they get full presidential pardons after, and they certainly have a lot of money often. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Our guest is Jennifer Taub, the author of Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime, which examines who gets a pass for committing such crimes, what the actual consequences are to our society, and how we can hold the perpetrators accountable. To start, I thought we'd begin with the basics and ask, what exactly is white-collar crime? I love so much, Mila, that you're calling that the basics because it's incredibly fraught. But let's start with the most simple definition, which was offered by the sociologist who coined the term. So Edwin Sutherland defined white-collar crime to be offenses committed by somebody of respectability and high social status in the course of their occupation. And by that, he was leading with status, really the wealthy and well-connected, or to business organizations, and then crimes committed in the course of their work. In what way is it fraught? Because people don't agree with this definition. How would you say we understand it today in popular media? Sure. And the reason why the definition is fraught and it's changed since 1939 is because, you know, he coined this term Sutherland did. Then a decade later, he wrote a book. And within months of his writing a book called White Collar Crime, he unfortunately passed away. So he didn't get to control his legacy. In his book, he focused mostly on corporate crime. So again, really economic crimes of the powerful. After he passed away, things shifted to where we tend to define white-collar crime by the nature of the offense instead of the status of the offender. So we often today define white-collar crime as those offenses that are centered in fraud, cheating or misleading somebody so they part with their money, or things involving um, hiding money like money laundering or tax fraud or tax evasion. Other crimes are related to things like adulterating food or misbranding drugs and pharmaceuticals or environmental crime. But, you know, again, it's very crime focused as opposed to person focused. If you think about white collar crime and you ask an ordinary person, what is white collar crime? They think often wealthy white people, wealthy white men doing things like embezzlement or insider trading. And most people would associate it with, in the first instance, as being nonviolent economic crimes. But when you look at people who are victims, often have the equivalent 
of violence equivalent of physical harm. And one example can be if you were one of the millions of families who lost their home in the foreclosure crisis who were victims of a fraudulent lending scheme or victims more broadly of this financial crisis that was resulting from these toxic mortgage-backed securities, all of it steeped in fraud. If you were someone like that, losing your home, being forcefully evicted by a sheriff is pretty violent, I have to say. Yeah, totally agree. Let's talk about the victims, because this is another myth, of course, that white-collar crime has no victims, but nothing could be further from the truth. Maybe the best example in terms of us understanding it and feeling it is the OxyContin story of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family and the true victims of addiction. You know, it, it is astonishing to me how we had the equivalent of a major drug bust and yet no people, none of the heavy-duty dealers are going to face any criminal consequences. And when I say that, I'm referring to Purdue Pharma, the company that manufactured OxyContin, a highly addictive opioid, and the owners of that, a branch of the Sackler family. Purdue Pharma first launched their OxyContin product back in the 90s, and they pleaded guilty In May of 2007, the company itself entered a guilty plea, a felony, because they had admitted to misbranding OxyContin almost since it was launched. They agreed at the time to pay $600 million. They were participating in misleading doctors who maybe were not trained in addiction to prescribe this highly addictive drug to people who shouldn't have gotten it. It should have only been for end-of-life care or for people who were in incredible cancer pain. It was not meant if you had just gotten a tooth pulled at the dentist. And they claimed falsely that it was less addictive because it was a time-release of the opioids involved. And so literally... Right after entering into that plea, before any time passed, they began this illegal scheme again. And the reason why I know this is right at the end of Bill Barr's reign over the Department of Justice, Purdue Pharma again pleaded guilty. And this time, it was even a bigger scheme. They pleaded guilty to cover their activity from May of 2007 through at least March of 2017. And it was a multi-billion dollar criminal conspiracy. And according to the plea, Purdue Pharma conspired to help other people dispense OxyContin to people who had no legitimate need. This conspiracy also involved lying to the Drug Enforcement Agency. And they had been telling the DEA that they had put in place an effective program to prevent unlawful diversion of OxyContin, but It wasn't true. And what's worse than that, they also this time around admitted that they had conspired to violate the federal anti-kickback laws. And this involves illegally paying doctors to write prescriptions of their opioid products. You know, they were prosecuted, they paid a fine, and they kept on going. And to me, what's outrageous here is that none of the family members or employees this time around were charged with anything. Back in 2007, some executives, not family members, pleaded to misdemeanors and paid some money. So this time around, it's the Department of Justice, again, under Bill Barr, 
boasts about the size of this, how big the criminal penalty was here. It was $3.5 billion plus a $2 billion forfeiture and some $8 billion to settle civil liability. And all that sounds like a lot of money, but the Sacklers themselves, all they agreed to do is pay $225 million. But this family has a multi-billion dollar fortune. And they paid that money to settle what's called False Claim Act violations. But if those were brought as criminal charges against them, as opposed to just the civil settlement, they come with up to five years in prison. And just to close this out on them, in the press release, the Department of Justice made clear that this was not a criminal release of anyone, including the Sackler family. And the implication there is that, sure, they could still be charged with crimes, but that's almost laughable. People who are in the know believe that the family members must have made a deal with William Barr's Justice Department to stay out of jail in exchange for having their company pay these big ticket fines. So that's how the family made out. But over 200,000 people have died just of prescription opioid overdoses since they began pushing this highly addictive drug. It's astonishing to me how many people they victimized and how there's no real accountability for the, the drug dealers behind this. Yeah, that's right. It is really surprising how much they get away with. And it's clear that money and power protects high status, white collar criminals from having to suffer any of the consequences of being caught. You use the term implicit immunity. Can you explain how that works and how in practice, white collar criminals seem to avoid the most serious consequences? Yeah, I I talk about this concept of implicit immunity alongside with another one, mutually assured immunity. And they're related. And to me, implicit immunity means that based on your status in our society, you're going to be given a pass and a lot of second chances and third chances, and in some cases, infinite chances, even if you violate white collar criminal laws. And when someone of that status ends up getting prosecuted and put in jail, they end up going to a kind of club fed, a minimum security prison camp. People often emerge from prison and they can rehabilitate themselves. Sometimes they get full presidential pardons after, and they certainly have a lot of money often. To me, the poster child of implicit immunity is Donald Trump. From the beginning of his career in his 20s all the way through, into and after his time in office has been engaged in unlawful and perhaps criminal behavior and corruption. If he'd actually been held criminally accountable, he would have served time in prison instead of the White House. And time and time again, federal agencies settled civil charges with him or his businesses, cases settled with the SEC, money laundering cases, You wonder why along the way there was never an effort to dig deeper and see whether these could have been criminal cases. There was a RICO settlement made right after he was elected. So that's an example of implicit immunity, and it's quite dangerous. And the mutually assured immunity is more like the situations where one person has a kind of dirt on another person and therefore no one speaks out against each other. And that's the kind of thing where I think someone like Jeffrey Epstein 
gets away for so long with what he was doing because he had, in that case, really damning criminal information, apparently, about many people. And to me, what was happening there is a kind of white collar crime because I think there was probably extortion going on because he had videos of people engaged in criminal actions. What mutually assured immunity does is it means that people who are in a certain circle will not hold each other accountable, and they tend to be the most powerful people who can use criminality to gain more power and wealth in our society. So that reinforces this pattern and the power that they have to continue to commit these crimes. So on a larger scale, how does white collar criminality hurt our democracy? I think that a democracy like ours that entwines a public and a private sector depends upon having institutions in both sectors be trusted. And to be trusted, you have to be accountable and self-policing. We want public officials who are honest, who own up for their mistakes. And similarly, we want businesses that can create products and services that we all want and need, creating choice, you know, whether it's book manufacturers or pharmaceutical manufacturers or what have you. We want leaders of those businesses to be honest, to be transparent, and to be accountable. If you lose trust in businesses, you could lose trust in businesses that we need to count on. One example, even before the coronavirus, given some of the scandals and legal settlements before, there was growing and still is anti-vaxxer sentiment in the country where people believe that pharmaceutical companies are pushing unsafe vaccines that cause autism on the public. And that's not true. But once you erode your trust, then conspiracies like that can grow. You get people now who are going to refuse to get the coronavirus vaccine. This is the way in which when we lose trust in an industry or in a sector, then when we really need to count on them and have the public's trust, we might not have it. And so this is why doing right by those you harm and not letting the heads of companies who presided over fraud or dishonesty stay on or keep their hundreds of millions of dollars of gain. Otherwise, we have an incentive system not to have transparency, honesty, and accountability in either the public or private sector. We'll continue our conversation with Alec in a moment. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, HelloFresh. My family loves to eat out, but it gets expensive so quickly, which is why I've been cooking HelloFresh meals recently. Now I enjoy restaurant-caliber food for up to 72% less than I would pay to eat out. It also lets me enjoy cooking new meals easily with pre-apportioned servings. Best of all, you can enjoy it too. They're offering 12 free meals, including free shipping, when you go to HelloFresh.com hopeful12 and use code HOPEFUL12. HelloFresh makes cooking stress-free and cuts down those annoying trips to the grocery store. It can also help you to cut down your carbon footprint because it's the first carbon-neutral meal kit out there. Sustainability never tasted so good. HelloFresh is committed to civic engagement and safe, fair workplaces, and they donated over 4 million meals to charity in 2020. 
They're also continuing to make generous donations to food banks around the country to combat America's food insecurity crisis. This week, I cooked the crispy Monterey Jack chicken. It was super easy and fast, not to mention delicious. The chicken was tender with a crunchy crust, and the sriracha mayo topped it off perfectly. If you're interested, you can try it too. Just go to HelloFresh.com Hopeful12 and use code Hopeful12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com Hopeful12. Happy cooking! I think this is a good time to talk about government corruption because to your point that it also needs to exist in the public sphere, trust that is, and how there also we appear to be failing in holding people accountable if they engage in corruption. Can you talk about the McDonald case and why the bribery statute was ineffective to hold him accountable? Listeners, to set the stage here, McDonald was the former governor of Virginia, and the Supreme Court overturned a conviction of him related to alleged bribery. And what makes the case particularly complicated as a legal matter is that because he was a state official, he was not actually charged under the standard bribery statute that applies to federal officials. Rather, he was charged under a kind of wire fraud statute and an extortion statute that can apply to all people. But as part of the lawsuit, he, his lawyers, and the federal prosecutors agreed that for purposes of this case, they were going to point to that federal bribery statute that applies to federal officials as well. And so due to the Supreme Court's decision here, they narrowed the way that federal law can apply to federal officials, even though that law, that particular bribery statute, was not even in the case. So this is why it's such an important sweeping decision, because it doesn't just apply to the federal laws that go against officials, including state officials, now will also apply to members of Congress and others. What's so upsetting is what the Supreme Court essentially said, and it was a unanimous decision. What they said is they took a look at the plain language of the bribery statute and said, we're looking at this and Congress, if you want to change it, you've got to change it because right now, the way our anti-bribery laws work is that paying for access, even hundreds of millions of dollars, when you pay a politician, whether state, local, or federal, et cetera, for access, for them to introduce you to people who might be able to help get you contracts, you know, you could pay cash for the daughter's wedding, gowns for their wife, a Rolex watch that's engraved, vacations, access to sports cars, you name it. Although that's quid pro quo, paying for access is not unlawful under our existing statutes. That's what it basically said. And the reason why he was acquitted is because he never took an official act under the meaning of the statute. So he did not sign legislation or veto legislation or take anything or make a particular official decision to help the guy who was giving him all of these gifts. And for that reason, it was not a federal crime. And for a lot of people, that's 
disturbing, but this was not entirely surprising because the Supreme Court had ruled similarly on a different case years ago unanimously. And so really the ball is in Congress's court. And if they don't want to be buttered up and paid for access, they could change the statute to prohibit any kind of direct personal payments or gifts over a certain dollar amount, for example, and make that a federal crime. But they haven't done it. Yeah, there's not really any motivation to do that. They do have ethics rules, right? They could codify some of the ethics rules. But you're right. There's no appetite to create a law that someone might inadvertently violate. But I think maybe some people want to be paid for access. I think people are getting paid for access yeah. right now. And I think we know this. And access, the danger of it is, to me, the access helps shape the opinions. I feel like we should talk about Enron as an example of the bigger appetite in the past to actually hold people accountable and that it crumbled in the 2000s, most notably with the financial meltdown in 2008. But before we talk about the meltdown, I think it's important to talk about how Enron is a good example of how it actually could work and has in the past. What happened there and why did actually the leaders, the head honchos, white collar criminals actually go to jail. You know, when you dedicate resources to a problem, you get results. And the same thing was true with the white collar crime accounting fraud epidemic that came to a peak with Enron. And the government decided to put together a task force and put people behind it. They did the same thing after the savings and loan debacle. After um, the big Enron accounting scandal, there was a task force led by Andrew Weissman, and it was quite successful. In the accounting fraud era between the 1990s and early 2000s, we saw one corporate leader after another who was caught cooking the books, misleading investors, actually be held to account. And at that time period, Chief executive officers and other high-ranking executives were prosecuted, convicted, and sent to prison. And to use one example, the four years between July of 2002 and March of 2006, the Department of Justice convicted more than 82 CEOs, 85 presidents, 36 CFOs, and 14 chief operating officers in corporate fraud cases. But after the 2008 crisis, we stopped doing that. Why did we stop doing that after the 2008 crisis? I don't know. There are different um, theories. I think it was a confluence of factors. One factor that led into it was after 9-11, uh, a tremendous amount of resources at the FBI, which is a division, obviously, of the Department of justice were focused on counterterrorism efforts. Another piece was, although the Enron Task Force was extremely successful, they also went after Arthur Anderson, the accounting firm. The partnership was convicted, and then the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court 
and the conviction was overturned based on an interpretation of a federal statute. Even though the conviction was overturned, Arthur Anderson was done for, and there was a bit of a backlash where people kind of got shy and thought maybe things went too far. And then the third piece of this is something that my friend Jesse Isinger, who wrote the book The Chicken Chip Club, talks about, which was around the late 90s, the Department of Justice started entering into criminal settlement agreements instead of prosecuting businesses. So they're called deferred prosecution agreements or non-prosecution agreements where a company will pay a tremendous fine but not technically be written down as having committed a felony. With a deferred prosecution agreement, they have to agree to behave themselves, let's say, for three years, have an internal monitor, and if they don't commit any more crimes, then um, you know they're never charged. And as settlements started to happen, he believes that people within the Justice Department lost not just the will, but the knowledge and the ability to bring tough cases before grand juries and into courtrooms and win them. So that's part of a theory. It doesn't answer the question as to why executives themselves aren't charged, but sometimes there's a sense that even though it shouldn't happen this way, that if the CEO is allowing for the corporation to enter into a settlement and pay a lot of money, which is going to come out of the shareholders' pockets ultimately, that he is able to avoid prison himself. It's not supposed to happen. That goes against the Department of Justice guidelines. But look around. What else could have been going on? It's really shocking when I was reading your book and how often this happened, that they got away with it and signed these non-prosecution or deferred prosecution agreements. And the thing that always stood out to me is that in almost all of these instances, they admit to no wrongdoing. And every time I read that in the paper, I think, what is the purpose of this Like from a legal standpoint? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the purpose of that is to avoid civil litigation from consumers or shareholders. They're trying to avoid having an admission on the record of liability that can then be used in court against them. Kind of makes it more expensive for civil litigants to bring their cases successfully. They'll have more hoops to jump through in terms of surviving motions to dismiss and gathering evidence than they would if you just have a statement saying, yep, I did it, right? That's one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, got it. So let's talk about your proposed fixes. You have six of them. So one of the ideas is to give prosecutors better tools. We've already talked about how the anti-bribery tools have been weakened. Um, One area prosecutors need in order to track down money laundering or to prevent money laundering is to stop the use of these things that are called anonymous shell companies that are set up often in Delaware, not just overseas, but here in the U.S., that are just used as vehicles to hide the illicit proceeds of crime. And now most shell companies have to disclose their true owners. And what's interesting is this corporate transparency law was passed as part of this defense bill only because there was a veto override. Trump vetoed this legislation, but Congress overrode his veto. So that's one good thing. And the rest of my suggestions really mostly center around this idea of priorities. The most important thing, I think, is to create 
a new division within the Department of Justice, now that we have a new attorney general, that is focused on prosecuting, convicting, and incarcerating big money criminals. Um, We need to strengthen laws so that they have the tools they need to do that. And then we also need to better empower whistleblowers, journalists, and victims. One of the most successful ways to catch fraud against the government is this thing called the False Claims Act, and it creates bounty fees for whistleblowers. It allows individual people to sue corporations that are cheating the government. And if the government wants to step in, they can step in. And if they don't, the individual can pursue the case on their own. But if the Department of Justice steps in and gets money in recovery from the fraudster, then the whistleblower themselves gets a piece of that. I go into somewhat of detail about how we should expand that law. And I have other suggestions, but I think the top one is really to put a sign up at the Department of Justice and saying, we're back in business now. We're going to put the brakes on this runaway white collar crime epidemic. Yeah, that would be a great start. One of the things that we haven't spoken about yet is the magnitude of these white-collar crimes. And it's difficult to ascertain exactly how much it is in terms of dollars. And of course, it's not only dollars, right? Because as we have spoken already, there are also lives lost. But the big impediment to that is that we don't have a national database that can actually collect this. But in terms of your estimation, What is really the magnitude here of white-collar crime that actually we're all paying for in some sense? That's such a good question. I looked in every possible resource I could, and what I've come up with is that white-collar crime in America, just fraud and embezzlement alone, costs victims anywhere between $300 billion and $800 billion a year. And that number is huge on its own, but let's compare that to street-level property crimes. And that costs only $16 billion. That's a number the FBI tallies up annually. So we have at least $300 billion in just fraud and embezzlement crimes and $16 billion in street property crimes. It just completely eclipses it, and we just don't have a handle on it. Given these gigantic numbers, What can we do to make people change their minds about how they think about white collar crime? Because right now we're locking up people who are essentially petty thieves, right? But we're not locking up the people who are actually inflicting harm on our society at large. I was thinking about this because I had an instance of identity fraud recently and the bank realized what it was. And then I said, can you call me back with details? Because I wanted to figure out who to report it to. And here's the thing. I don't even know, and I'm an expert in this area, should I be reporting this to which banking regulator? Or should I report this to the FBI? You know, where are they going to put this? If my purse were stolen, I'd report that. But how much money could that possibly be? Whatever your handbag costs and then time it takes Mm -hmm. to replace your credit card and the money you have in it. But if there's identity fraud or there's some other kind of fraud, we don't report it. And I think that we need to demand that there's a place that we can report this to so it can be tracked. And if people start getting the sense that they have a place to report it to and no one's doing anything about it, I think that could create the energy behind accountability. So as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to 
help us demand accountability, both from the DOJ towards white collar criminals, or even maybe just changing the way that we talk about it? Such a good question. I mean, I think one thing would be to reach out to members of Congress and say, tighten up the anti-bribery laws because they're not going to root out corruption anymore. And I think the second thing is to decide that you want to speak out, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's to your member of Congress, make a complaint to the Department of Justice to start making noise in any way we can so that this issue becomes pressing. Every time we speak out about the unfairness here, every time we question why it is that no members of the Sackler family or no big bankers went to jail, every time we say that, it puts more pressure, I believe, on those in power to do the right thing instead of just ignore it. Good advice. So looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Oh, I love this question. Looking into the future, what makes me hopeful is that we have a new attorney general, Merrick Garland, and we also have a new deputy attorney general, Lisa Monaco. And what you may not know is that Lisa Monaco has a background in white collar crime enforcement. In particular, she worked as part of the Enron task force, and she wasn't just a minor part. She secured convictions of several executives from the Enron broadband division. She received the attorney general's Award for Exceptional Service, which is the department's highest award. So with her in that number two position under Merrick Garland, if there ever was the skill and the opportunity to crack down on white collar and corporate crime, we have the right person in that job. Wow, that's tremendous and truly hopeful. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight and congratulations on your book. Thank you, Mila, so much for having me. I was super hopeful after this conversation, but since that recording, a major decision on Purdue Pharma has come out. After more than a year of negotiations, a bankruptcy plan for the company was moved forward by federal judge Robert Drain in New York State. In the coming weeks, more than 600,000 individuals, companies, and governments will vote on that package, which includes giving up control of Purdue Pharma by the Sacklers and a $4.275 billion fine that would go to opioid addiction relief programs. Of course, the Sacklers admit to no wrongdoing. If the bankruptcy is approved, the Sacklers will effectively win immunity from future opioid lawsuits. More than 20 attorneys general are criticizing the deal, noting that the Sacklers are improperly piggybacking on their company's bankruptcy, even though they themselves didn't file for bankruptcy. Sounds like the new DOJ is not so different from the old one after all. And again, no one will go to jail. Perhaps the most hopeful part here is that this case has garnered a lot of public attention and outrage. But I'm not holding my breath for a radical turn towards more accountability. Next week, our guest is Alec Karakatsanis, the founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps. We talk about his book, Usual Cruelty, the Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System, how the punishment bureaucracy works, and how we can rethink our legal system. 
Only 4% of all police time in this country is spent on what police themselves call violent crime. 96% of it is spent on other things. The most common police arrest in many jurisdictions in this country is driving on a suspended license. And there are 11 million people with suspended licenses, not because they're bad drivers, but because they owe debt. The second most common arrest in many jurisdictions and the most common arrest in other jurisdictions is possession of marijuana, possession of other drugs. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.